the void. Actually, a fun place to go to. Is it? Beach Vegas. Is it? Yeah. Is it? It really is. Is it? Truly. Is it? Uh-huh. Is it? Yep. Is it? No? Is it? Absolutely. Truly. KUCI. Irvine. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, welcome. This is your host, Kimberly Martin, and I am in the studio today with some very interesting guests. I know we always have interesting folks here at Real People OC, and um, I'm always delighted to share them with you. So thank you for coming on this journey with us every Thursday afternoon from 4 to 5. We are live in the studio with um, a couple people I just met by chance, and I'm going to tell you a little story. I was out and about with my kids, taking my daughter to Cal State Fullerton to um, to do club volleyball. And my little kids were in tow with me, and I have a 12-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl in addition to my older daughter. And um, we were walking along, and as we approached the um, the gym, out in the front of the gym area, in this big in this big grassy area, were a bunch of folks with swords. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a mom, so I uh, I wouldn't say I have any serious phobias with uh, weaponry and whatnot, but um, we're going to talk about that a little bit today, too. But I, I saw my son just get so transfixed and drawn into what these folks were doing. And at first I thought, okay, they're fencing, but I've never seen anybody fence with an actual sword. And I have to say, I was coming off of watching the uh, finale of um, Game of Thrones. I have to say I'm a little enthralled by that show and uh, lots of sword fighting there and I, I was blown away to see a bunch of people doing it I thought is this new I mean is this because of the show that's on that people are interested and so we got to sit and talk to a bunch of folks there and come to find out there's a whole group here in Orange County that um, is devoting their life and um, their free time to preserving the art of the European martial arts. And so I have brought them in here today to delight you as much as they have me. And so let me introduce to you who's here with us in the studio. We have um, John Mayshar, Miles Cup, and Lacey Haig. And um, I'll give little brief intros, intros about each of them before as we get along, but why don't you guys just say hello, John, Miles, Lacey? Hi. Hello. Can you Yay, hear me? Yeah, okay, good. I'm going to check Hi. the levels and uh, fix. You don't have to move that. Just kind of join into each other because um, otherwise we'll hear all the creaking the whole time. Well, that'll kind of sound very medieval, though. That could be fun. Um, sounds like we're in a dungeon here. But at any rate, um, okay, so John and Miles are here because they have started this alliance that they're going to tell us about that is preserving this art of the European martial arts. So I just want you to just briefly introduce yourselves and tell me um, a little bit about who you are and why you're doing this. I'm pointing to John. Okay, well, uh, I got into uh, historical European martial arts in, I think, 2005. And the group that I started with had no idea that what they were doing. And I didn't learn a whole lot of real stuff for a couple years. And then... Um, through the internet and uh, and uh, and YouTube and in talking about videos and exchanging ideas with people, uh, I eventually was one of the people who founded the uh, HEMA Alliance. HEMA is Historical European Martial Arts, and uh, now we're a pretty sizable nonprofit and the largest group for what we do in North America. Oh, impressive! Okay, Miles, tell me about how you came to this. Yes, well, I've always had a bit of an interest in historical European uh, martial arts in the sense that I've always liked you know, things like The Three Musketeers and Robin oh, Hood, yeah. and we like to watch those movies and appreciate that history and that culture, but I never thought that there was a way that you could actually practice the fencing of that time period in a way that's vigorous, in a way that has all of the energy that we see it done in the movies, but not doing it as a form of stage combat. And that's what attracted me to historical European martial arts when I found out about it in 2010 at Cal State Fullerton at the 
club that was founded there by Jonathan Mayshar and Jason Taylor. Okay, good. Yeah, I got to meet Jason that night. Jason's actually a professor at Cal State Fullerton, isn't he? Yeah, and that's why one of our clubs is is, is focused at Fullerton. It was an easy place for us to get into. Um, we don't always have the easiest time selling people on on the safety of fighting with big steel swords. Yes. Okay, well, that was what was so impressive to me is that you were playing largely with big plastic swords initially, and then as the night progressed and as the skill level progressed, then you switched to some of the more serious, um, serious. I don't really want to call it weaponry, but I guess you have to, don't you? Because is that really what it is? Well, you know, it's it's funny because some of us um, have discussed at different times in order to spread the arts and get people more interested, maybe we should stop calling them weapons. But it's such an old tradition. And in Olympic fencing, they use, you know, when... They use these things which really bear very little relationship to swords. They're, um, they have no edges and there's no point, and they call them weapons. That's the term that they use. They're the little bendy ones, right? Yeah. Miles, yeah. you have a special name for that. <laughs> yes, in Olympic sport fencing, they fence with three different types of weapons, each with different rule sets. They're called the foil, the epee, and the saber. And Olympic sport fencing, you know, as I call it a sport, it's an athletic sport about scoring points. And you can trace, you know, a lineage at some point back to dueling systems of the 19th century that Olympic sport fencing comes out of. But the practice of it is distinct from what we're attempting to do as martial artists, which is to reconstruct authentic systems from manuals rather than treating it as a sport, as sport fencing does. And don't get me wrong, sport fencing is a lot of fun. I still do it. But it's important to draw a distinction between that type of activity and the different type of activity that we're talking about here today. And the way we draw that distinction is that we say that we don't fight with car antennas. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And that's that's what we, that was probably our main touch point as a community, as a society here in the United States right now, is just what we get to see occasionally in the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that one fencing. So there's there's so much to this, we'll call it an art, that's lost. So I want to talk about where what we're trying to bring back here with, with HEMA. I'm interested. Right. Well, People are generally familiar with uh, martial weapon arts through Asian martial arts. And the reason that they are is that uh, Japan got sort of yanked into the modern world. I mean, they industrialized overnight through contact with, with Europe. And Europe didn't have that experience. Europe developed incrementally. And because the European mindset is not really circular philosophically, it's linear, Uh, when guns became more and more effective in combat, they gave up the use of the sword. It became something that you carried uh, as a symbol of office. But fencing died out of, of, you know, natural causes in Europe. And uh, it really wasn't until uh, the Internet that we were able to reconstruct this as a, as a worldwide phenomenon of a martial arts community. There have always been groups that studied historical European martial arts, but before the Internet, they were groups that happened to live near a library that owned one of the manuals that, um, that is the basis for our art. Because those manuals were never, um, they were never popular enough to be worth printing, you know, mass printing and distributing everywhere so people could study them. So, you know, there might be an Italian group or there might be a North German group. And uh, in the early days of the Internet, people started to send around, um, at, w- at that time they were mimeographs, you know, early scans of some of the manuals. And people got excited. And uh, generally they were people with other martial arts experience who had done kendo, you know, Japanese sword fighting of one type or another and uh, got excited by the idea of learning how to fight with a longsword or a, or a Polish saber. Nice. Okay, so Miles, I know you're really big into the history, and you, um, you're a guy that drives around with these books in your car. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I guess I can shed a little bit of background on the, sort of the history of the manuals themselves that we study. As, as Jonathan touched upon, a lot of the early origins of the modern study of HEMA is based in the rise of the internet and people's ability to share these treatises with, with one another. But let me talk a little bit about the treatises themselves. Uh, many of them had very many different contexts. You can't look at the treatises as a, a general idea about what they were used for. It depends on what century and what country you're talking about. If we're talking about 15th century Germany, they were usually commissioned by dukes and nobles to uh, be used for dueling purposes or to train their own soldiers. Masters of defense were hired by people of nobility to create these manuscripts, and the intention was to keep the technique secret. 
because you did not want them to be used by anybody. They were as secretive as modern military secrets are to us today. But then when you go to a different century, let's say 17th century Italy, you start to see more mass creation, of course, with the inventing of the printing press, the distribution of these manuals from masters of defense who make their living writing these books, distributing them, and and also being patrons and teachers to people on a personal level. So a lot of the history from these manuals is very fascinating because it not only sheds light on the fencing culture itself and how you can actually do these techniques and how we reconstruct them today, but it also sheds light onto the manner in which Europeans themselves looked at dueling and their own opinions about violence and things that before we were never fully able to appreciate even as academics, but now with the discovery of these manuals, a lot of things that didn't make sense to us before can make a lot more sense to us now, like um, William Shakespeare's plays, for instance. Okay. All right. Um, okay. I, what I love about this is, is is the rich connection to history. Is is that mostly what draws your members in initially, or is it this desire, like you said, to experience it in a more vigorous way? History is what allows, like for example, in our in our kids program, history is what allows the fathers to sell the program to their wives. Ah. But what <laughs> what draws people in is usually swords. It, you know, swords kind of sell themselves as long as you, as people can see what we're doing. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a whole lot of fun, and it's you know it's very romantic, and people have associations with the movies, and we have to train them out of that because people will come to our classes, and one of the first things that they'll do when they start to spar is they'll hit you with their sword, and then they'll spin around and try and hit you on the other side because that's what happens in Star Wars a lot, a lot of spinning. Right. Spinning. Right, right. Spinning is a very very bad idea when you're fighting somebody. Oh, very interesting. So. One of the things that struck me so fascinating is that um, you had women there that night as well, and. So I've been back a few times, and there's there seems to be um, an interest among women, too. Lacey, why don't you comment on what interested you in participating with this art? Well, actually, my roommate is the one who um, got me involved with it. She went to the um, club day on campus at Cal State Fullerton and saw um, the Crown Martial Arts Club, which is the club on that campus. And um, she got me to go with her to go and join the group. And what keeps you coming back? What, what, why is there a draw for you? Um, multiple reasons. One reason is just the good aspect as a woman to learn more self-defense. We actually have a woman self-defense teacher who's um, in the club. And it's just good to get, gain the confidence and know practical things that you can use as a woman. Um, another thing is just the idea of swords and all the historical background and just bringing more women into it is really nice. The women, the amount of women in the HEMA community are growing slowly over time. Do you feel like it gives you, like I know for me, martial arts gives you that inner strength. Are you feeling some of that come online for you as a woman? Yeah, more confidence when you're walking around, knowing more of how you would deal if someone was coming after you or that kind of a thing. Okay. You more know what to do. Okay. Okay, good. You know, it's um it's unlikely that any of us are going to get attacked while we're holding a sword. So, um that aspect is not entirely practical. But uh, we study a complete medieval martial art, so that includes unarmed combat. We use grappling, and we use knives and daggers, and we use unarmed defense against other people with weapons. So that gets more practical. But um, as we teach um, our beginners, and especially the women who come to us, the most important thing about self-defense is learning to relax under the pressure of being attacked. If you flip out inside your head, then even if you have a lot of skills, they're not going to be effective for you. So um, even though Lacey spends a lot of time fighting with a sword, the fact that she can fight with a sword and stay calm and, and make important, quick decisions about, am I going to go left and right? Am I going to defend high or low? Uh, those, are th those are things that she'll be able to activate in uh, a very unfortunate circumstance, even if she doesn't have her sword with her. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, what, what was the... So in terms of bringing women to HEMA, one of the things that I like to talk about uh, when I'm when I'm teaching my own classes, when I get a chance to go into the history and not just teaching the movements that we gain from the manuals, is also challenging a lot of preconceptions that people have about women and their role in history, particularly the medieval period and the Renaissance. 
it may surprise you know, a lot of the listeners out there to know that in some of the manuals that we've discovered, there are instances of men and women engaging in judicial dueling because during those time periods, there was not a central uh, you know, legal system that we experience today. So if there were no witnesses to a crime or to some sort of dispute, you could settle it through violence, through a judicial duel. And so where there's um, several instances documented in the manuals of duels between a man and a woman, now, of course, these duels are not as you might imagine them to be. They put the man in his waist um, in, in a hole up to his waist and they give him a club and the woman <laughs> is allowed to walk around the hole and they have to give her a feminine weapon. So they give her a veil with a rock in it and they will fight to the death or until one party cries uncle and then the dispute is settled. And the circumstances that these duels could have been fought over are numerous. It could have been divorce. It could have been an inheritance dispute. A woman could challenge a man to a duel if he claims to have slept with her was another instance that people fought duels over. So that's one of the things that I really find so illuminating about Hemus as it relates to what women can gain from it is they can see that, you know, throughout history, there have been roles that have not been attributed to women in the power that an authority that they could have under the law that now we're starting to discover because of these manuals. So we also have a, an early manual that shows fighting with sword and shield where one of the combatants is a woman and the style of fighting depicted is clearly like it's, it's a sport fencing style. So, um, so fencing wasn't something that women were um, naturally excluded from in all places and times in medieval Europe. But another thing, Miles, about that, um, about the uh, man versus woman duels, you know, depending on which section and which manuscript we're studying, there's different degrees of background and uh, different amounts of speculation you have to do to try and understand what was going on. There is not a whole lot of source material for figuring out what's going on with the man versus woman duels, but we can use logic in some cases and use our other um, martial knowledge. So in the man versus woman duels, in some manuals you'll see the woman win, and in some manuals you'll see the man win. So we know that they're talking about more than one duel. Um, they're not just all writing about the same circumstance and illustrating the same circumstance. Interesting. And also there's um, some images of the man in the hole pulling the woman into the hole. And then there are other images of the woman pulling the man out of the hole. And this is important because if you look at the pulling the woman into the hole, you figure, okay, well, that, that makes martial sense, right? Because if she, he pulls her into the hole, she's not going to be able to fight and he's going to be able to win. But what could possibly be the martial value of pulling the man out of the hole? Sure. Easier to kill him when he's in the hole than pull him out of the hole and let him walk around. So it's a pretty safe bet that that was a non-lethal way to win the duel, is to get the guy in the hole out or to you know, fall in if you're the, if you're the woman. Interesting. So applying some of her more womanly uh, thinking to the process. I, um, I got to see the books, touch the books. They are so richly designed and so, oh, the colors, the, um, the detail. That has to be a draw. Oh, certainly. If you're a bibliophile, there is a lot to experience in HEMA. You've probably seen a lot of the books that I drive around in my car, and several of them are indeed very beautifully illustrated. And... Some of them have history uh, in and of themselves. One of the manuals that I particularly like to study is a six, uh, 17th century Italian uh, manual that was published in Denmark through the patronage of King Christian IV mm -hmm. of Denmark. And it is notable for being the first book that was printed using copper plate engravings in Denmark. So it, you know, and that's, and this is a fencing treatise that we're talking about, has that milestone in the history of printing as far as European history is concerned. And a lot of the manuals were illustrated by people who were very notable Italian Renaissance ar artists like Albrecht Dürer was one who illustrated um, fencing treatises, and we're all familiar with his works, I hope. And one of the fencing... Oh, yeah, everybody uh, yeah, knows Albrecht Dürer. Come on, Miles. Wow, Miles. You know. <laughs> and, and one of the uh, manuals that... I think you that... better draw us in a little <laughs> further. <laughs> and, and one of the manuals that uh, I also study is by uh, Camillo Agrippa, who was an engineer in the 16th century Italy, and we know that he was uh, an acquaintance of Michelangelo. So there is a very close connection between fencing masters and the study of anatomy and the study of art and the advancements in art that you can trace through these treatises and you can see this progression towards better printing and a more comprehensive way of publishing books. Okay, nice. I, and, and to have those resources. If you're just tuning in with us, I want, um, I want to reintroduce our guests so that you know what we're talking about. Um, this is Kimberly Martin. This is Real People OC. And we have in the studio today 
three individuals who are members of the HEMA Alliance, and HEMA stands for Historical European Martial Arts. So we have uh, John Mayshar, Miles Cup, and Lacey Haig, and um, all of them are giving us their perspectives on the how and the why that led them to practicing this form of art, martial art, and really just trying to explain to us what makes it a martial art. That's probably what interests me the most is that the custom, the honor, and um, all the things that go to it that, like you said early on, John, in the interview, that we're, we're used to um, placing so much value on the role of honor in um, in the uh, martial arts, the uh, Japanese and um, the uh, maybe the Korean, whichever ones they, that people practice, but those seems to be mm-hmm. more popular, the Taekwondo and um, Aikido that we do here more readily in the United States. But all those aspects are still there, and, and you're using swords. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, there are uh, lots of references in the manuscripts to the, the proper cultural use of, of the weapons that, that we study. Uh, the, the teachers in general did not teach somebody to allow them to go out and uh, rob people with their swords. And there's also a religious context in a lot of the manuals, but you know, you're instructed not to use your, your skills to, to best somebody in dishonorable circumstances. Very much so that a black belt isn't allowed to just annihilate somebody. Just sure, maybe has to. sure. And, and a, a lot of the context for the historical European martial arts are in clubs that um, are not entirely different than a serious martial arts club today. So even though we're in a time period where these people would be occasionally using these swords in earnest, you know, in war or in a civil conflict to defend their lives, it's still also a sport. And there's a club that's centered around that sport. And the club has rules, and they're pretty strict rules. So we have documentation of, for example, fines that people can be charged if they don't show the proper respect within the club. And they can be kicked out of the club for not showing the proper respect. And these are all things that tend to be familiar to people who have studied traditional Asian martial arts. Okay. All right. You want to add to that, Miles? Well, yes. There's uh, certainly a lot that I could add, especially if we're talking about uh, 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 Renaissance dueling culture, especially in the guilds that Jonathan has just alluded to, especially in the sense that one of the things that we discover when we're talking about these guilds is that they were not just places where people could get together to fence and study martial arts. They were also in many instances, the civil militia. They were the volunteer fire department and as much of a concept as you can think of that and the police force. So many of these guilds were established by noble charter and and so on and whatnot. And again, they had a lot of very strict rules about how they were obeyed and also different contexts about how violence was even conducted. For example, there are instances of people striking one another in settling conflicts, but using the flat parts of their swords, not the edges which would harm somebody, but the flat of the blade And in those instances, a person would not be guilty of assault as they would be today. But if you were to use the edge, you could be in a lot of trouble for doing that. So interesting. I want to throw out some some of our sources that we have. One of the websites that you have directed me to to learn a little bit more about what you're doing is uh, wiktenauer.com. And I'm going to spell that because it's a little play on wiki and um, Johannes Lichtenauer. Right. um, you're going to have to say he's the father of the dominant medieval German sword style of fighting. Is that the proper right? The, way to the, say the that? most okay. widely uh, disseminated style is Johannes Lichtenauer's style. Okay, so I am so in, not in my uh, in my realm of knowledge. So all this is new for me. I'm just really kind of wading my way through something that looks very fascinating, definitely from the outside looking in, but very much as an outsider. <laughs> so if you want to go on to Wichtenauer and learn a little bit more, it's W I K. T-E-N-A-U-E-R dot com. And um, so, but you've, you've, you have formed something called um, Cron Martial Arts. This is your, is this the... Um, Cron Martial Arts is just our, our local club affiliate of the HEMA Alliance. So okay. that's, that's the arm of the nonprofit that's here. The HEMA Alliance has about 44 different clubs throughout um, North America and Europe. We have a couple in Europe. Actually, we have one in uh, Tokyo as well. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, we have a European knight type guy teaching Japanese. <laughs> it's now, pretty fun. Who, how long has the HEMA Alliance been in existence? Uh, since 2009. Okay, and were you too instrumental in starting this, or is this you, John? Uh, I was, and Miles, uh, Miles met us a little bit later on. Okay. Yeah, he's right. becoming increasingly important, however. I can tell. <laughs> um, but, you know, I want to throw in here that uh, as people listen to me, and especially as people listen to Miles, uh, 
it's wonderful that there's an academic aspect to this. Mm -hmm. um, the academic aspect is being emphasized right now on the radio show because we're not allowed to fight in the radio studio. But not enough space. No, no, you know, and I brought my long swords, and if I'd known the size of the studio, I would have brought daggers instead. Because <laughs> it's, it's yeah, kind of it's a dagger-sized studio, gonna work. and not a sword-sized right. studio. But I, I, I want I want people listening to be aware that uh, if you're fascinated by the history, that's wonderful. But if you just want to come out and learn martial arts and fight people and uh, you know make friends in a physical way, that's wonderful too. We have a lot of people who we wouldn't put on the radio, but. <laughs> Well, we wouldn't necessarily put them on the radio, but they're instrumental to the club. We'd so. keep them out in the lobby yeah. and let them, yeah. you know, clink, yeah. clink. Against yeah, we have our bruisers, too. Yeah, very, I saw them. <laughs> it, it wasn't scary. It wasn't intimidating at all. And it's funny to me that that's one of the things that's come up in our advance work for the interview is you, you, um, you're looking to expand what you're doing at Cal State Fullerton. And if there is an interest, certainly, please, anybody, feel free to call in um, to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You can reach us at 949-824-5824. Uh, I can't guarantee I'll get you on air just because of my, my lack of understanding of our phone system, but I can certainly try. And um, so if you do have questions, they can always call um, John directly, too, right, John? You want to give out yourself? Sure. Yeah, anybody can call me. <clears throat> okay, so that's 949-554-5732 if you want to have, you know, direct contact. And sure, and, and you know, anytime anybody's interested in what the club might be doing or coming out to one of our practices or special events, uh, we always have our current information, you know, where you can find us on our club website, which is cronmartialarts.com. That's K-R-O-N. I was just about to yeah. spell that, yeah, because I don't know if anybody would know. That's K-R-O-N, cronmartialarts.com. Yeah, cron is German for crown, which is one of the, that's how you Kron. protect your head. You use the guard of the crown. Ah. So, cron. There are a lot of clubs that are named after moves in the German system. So there's a Zornhaus strike, and there's a Zornhau club, and there's a Schielhau strike, and there's a Schielhau club. And we were very lucky that there was a good name that hadn't yet been taken. Oh, okay. You know, but now if you want to start a club now, you have to go, be, you know, it's like the early days of the Internet. You can't get a good URL anymore. You That's to, so true. You know. Yeah, so true. Well, one of the things that engaged me so much was the ability that my son could participate, not so much with your adult club, but um, you also teach kids the martial arts, just like people are taking their kids to all the local, you know, studios where they're learning, uh, dojos, I guess would be the more proper um, to learn the martial arts that we've grown accustomed to thinking, um, you could you could teach this style to your children as well. Do you want to comment on that, Miles? Yes, I can comment about that. Uh, as it would turn out, historical European martial arts is, of course, really great for children because, of course, as Jonathan said, you don't really need to sell young boys on the fascination that they already have with swords or girls or yeah, girls I for that say, matter my daughter was just as <laughs> or interested girls for that my nine-year-old was just as interested she really liked the dagger yeah, oh my she's talked about the rondelle dagger and i'm like oh geez what's going on with her but yeah. you know um back to you lacy there's some quality to that and just having some mastery with with something of that nature that gives that extra edge of confidence so that you feel Hey, you know, I might be able to handle myself. You sometimes you just need to have a little edge to your confidence, would you say? Yes, it is. And sometimes it's also just fun to, you know, um learn the martial art and then beat boys at it at times <laughs> and everything. You know, I, I have to admit the great I, equalizer I, of the I, dagger, I, huh? The instructors in the club use Lacey and and uh Victoria as are examples of female fighters. And it's a challenge for us because, you know, uh, our culture doesn't teach women to be all that physically aggressive. And we've got, I don't know, Lacey, do we have, what, 13, 14 women in the club if they all Probably. show up at the same time? But we really, I mean, I'll be honest, we only have two fighters out of those 14. We have ones who will play with us, but, um, you know, uh, one of the big differences between uh, Olympic-style uh, fencing and, and historical fencing is that we don't just fight with swords. If you get really close to somebody and your sword is pressing up against theirs and you can knee them, then you knee them. And if you can grab their throat, then you grab their throat. And if you can trip them and elbow them in the ear, then that's what you do. And, uh, and Lacey's one of the few females that we have who will actually elbow me in the ear. So... Oh, good on you, Lacey. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's really interesting about that is John is really tall, and Lacey has, doesn't have the height advantage on John. No, and that's <laughs> so actually... So if your elbow's reaching his ear, that's really impressive. <laughs> well, I'm on the ground first. That's kind of her strategy. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's actually the fun thing about um, ringing, which is the German wrestling. There's a lot of moves 
with that, that's just using your opponent's weight against them and using their physical weaknesses in that sort of a way. Um, okay. So it's not about strength. A lot of it, um, people think, is about the strength, and you have to be very strong with the swords. The swords are not that heavy. They're only around, like, three pounds. Um, and uh, women don't have that much of a disadvantage because of uh, physical weakness that some people believe because of the weapon. You use the weapon to... For example, if the opponent's pressing really hard, you're going to go weak in it and make them move past you, and then you can use um, some moves to get them that way. So it's not just a physical strength kind of requirement. Yeah, actually, my co-instructor, Jason Taylor, wrote an article for Black Belt Magazine a couple years ago about that because the, the stereotype of medieval fighting that we get from the movies is that it was very brutish and, and you know based on strength and that the weapons were 20 pounds and you got tired in two minutes. And, and uh, there are a lot of principles, actually, that most people would associate with more soft-style Asian martial arts where you deliberately let the person move past you or you don't try and go strength against strength you you know you allow your guard to collapse and sidestep them so they fall over of their own weight and uh, a lot of the people who study historical european martial arts have significant skills in asian martial arts and see a lot of overlap there in fact uh, some of the judo people in our organization have actually created written concordances that show this move in german wrestling equals this move in judo and that move in german wrestling equals that move in judo and you know people are built the same way all over yeah and some of those consistencies must be really interesting to see um, just making those cross-cultural comparisons and how close they are aligned, those co-alignments, I guess you would call them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Miles, you had just as many girls in your class that I could have observed that you had boys, and these were all real young young kids. Um, what ages are interested or usually do you encourage to start out with something like this? What I usually tell the parents who ask me that question, as you've just done, is I s simply ask, can they follow directions and can they hold a sword? So, you know, if, if I were to give an official answer, I would say 7 to 13 is what's appropriate for my class right now. But I have children in my class maybe as young as 5 or 6. And because they meet that criteria, they can follow the directions and they can hold the sword and keep up with the rest of the class. And that's really what it's mostly about because I want to make sure that everybody practices in a safe manner. You know, nobody's going to be actually injured doing any of these arts. We train with the children with uh, plastic synthetic swords and they are sized down appropriately for the children. They use fencing masks. We use padded gloves when there's full contact sparring and there's working under the supervision of instructors. So even, you know, with very young children, they can still get a benefit from this art, boys and girls. And I get a lot of very interesting questions from the boys and girls when they ask so many questions about things like, you know, how did knights actually you do this? And how did women do it? And, you know, when would you fight somebody? And what would happen when you go to war? And, and what would this other person do to that? And I... I get a thrill from answering those types of questions because it's sparking that interest at a very young age that they're going to carry with them for the rest of their life and they'll always be thinking about the medieval period and the renaissance and history in a more active hands-on way when you can really put your hand on a sword and do something that you know somebody 500 years ago did the same techniques to defend their life and you're doing it now that's a bridge across time that I'm not familiar with a whole lot of other activities that do that. Yeah, in today's day and age. Boy, isn't that the truth. So, okay, if somebody was interested in this for their for their child, you have a class going right now in North Orange County up in uh, the Fullerton Brea area. But how many kids, let's say somebody wanted to uh, bring a class down here to um, uh, Irvine or down in South Orange County, how many kids would you need to form a class? Uh, we typically uh, start a class when we have a minimum of seven. Okay. And, and they usually need to be within a similar age range. Okay. So, you know, nine to 12 is one age range for us. And then 13 plus, you know, the teens range is different for us. Uh, we'll occasionally teach, uh, you know, call it semi-private lessons for a group that doesn't quite meet that. But uh, for a regular, you know, weekly type class, we like to have at least seven students. Okay. And uh, we're actually, uh, we've got a class now. Uh, Brian is teaching a class in uh, Lake Forest, is it? I believe that's correct. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to tap into that class, they could call you, John, at your cell again, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's give out that number one more time. It's 949-554-554. Uh, Five seven three two, and also anyone interested in the youth program, um, they can read about it. We have a separate website for the youth program, which is swordscholar.com. 
swordscholar.com. Swords, S, plural, or just sword scholar? Singular, sword okay. scholar. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Swordscholar.com. And, you know, you mentioned before Kimberly plastic swords, and then uh, Miles just mentioned them again. So I, I kind of want to address the plastic swords because people can get some misconceptions from that. Uh, the, the standard uh, training sword in the medieval period was a wooden sword. That's right. M- metal swords, steel swords are very expensive. Sure. Uh, they're hard to afford, and unlike fantasy movies, when steel starts banging against steel, it takes damage. They don't last forever, so you really wouldn't want to waste it. So you would use a wooden sword, which was actually called a waster. You know, a, oh, a, a like sword. I can waste this one. Yes, a sword you could afford to waste. And uh, before HEMA got big, there are probably ten thousand of us worldwide now. Oh, that's uh, not an not number. in my organization. I'm talking about everybody who does HEMA. Okay. But um, before HEMA got big a few years ago. Uh, we usually fought uh, at the beginner level. We we practiced with wooden wasters. We had wooden swords, and then um, once it got popular enough for mass production, people started tinkering around, and uh, they discovered that if they made swords out of the right kind of nylon, the right kind of synthetic plastic, they would be superior wasters because they would last longer. So they're not really wasters anymore because they don't break like the wood swords do. Right. But also, steel swords flex. They bend towards the tip, and uh, they're supposed to, and that's an important part of how you feel what the other opponent is doing and how you fight. And the synthetic swords bend too. So they're really a good thing for beginners to have as an option until they can get up to the level of, okay, Kimberly's picking up a steel sword I, now. I got a sword now, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I, I find it hard to believe that this is three and a half to four pounds. Um, that's probably one of the most... Uh, intriguing questions I had was how much do those weigh when you see um, a com- let's call them a combatant what would you call them a, a fighter fighter okay yeah. a fighter draw their sword it looks so laborious and the sword looks so unbelievably heavy I don't even know how they raise it up but uh, Lacey mentioned earlier it's it's a four pound sword right yeah they that's, were fast long swords are four pounds? long swords are fast and the style of fighting is fast and very um, precision oriented and, uh, you know, the problem is, is that there are stereotypes about medieval fighting. There, there are two sources for that. One of them is that, you know, the people who named the Enlightenment the Enlightenment mm-hmm. were people in the Enlightenment. And they also named the Dark Ages the Dark Ages because they just thought they were so cool. Sure. And everybody before them was such an idiot. Right, And, of you know, we have that <laughs> tradition in every culture going through different periods. Everybody thinks that they know everything to be known. And um, so... You know, they were they were fighting with these quick, thin rapiers, and they exaggerated the difference. They denigrated the artistry and the style of the sword styles that came before them, and their stereotypes have lasted up until now. And then the other source of misconceptions, um, I'll try and go over this quickly, but I think it's pretty interesting. Um, so far, so good. So, you know, Kimberly, I, I don't remember if we talked about this before, but when do you think the first medieval fair was? Like the first retro medieval fair, not the first fair in medieval times. Oh, you mean like the Renaissance fairs that yeah, we're exactly. having in our culture yeah. today? What was the first retro medieval fair? It would have to fair. be the 70s. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was, that a, it was actually the Victorians. Oh, Yeah, wow. the, the Victorians got obsessed with medieval times, and their research was just awful. Hmm. They got almost everything wrong. And they weren't that far off, you know, close to the turn of the century. They weren't that far off from the beginning of uh, motion pictures. When motion pictures got started telling medieval stories, they copied the Victorians' mistakes. And then every movie copies every other movie. And then the survivals of all the mistakes. Right. So you're still, on. when you go to the movies and you see sword fighting that's supposed to be European sword fighting, you are still seeing leftover mistakes made by the Victorians about what it was like. Okay, so that's probably one of the more important aspects of the HEMA Alliance is that you guys go to the source material and you don't really waste your time with the movies, even though that's kind of what intrigued me from from the get-go and probably also my son and the younger generation. Well, you know, I like Game of Thrones too, but I have to close my eyes when they start fighting with the swords. I'm sure you do. I don't like to watch those parts either, but um, I'm also really impressed at how effective the sword is. You know... Um, for it to only be four pounds, I mean, they're they're taking some pretty big chunks out of human human bodies. Is that is that how effective they were back then, or not so much? Are we seeing no, a no? They were they were extremely effective, and you know we don't we don't have every student do this, but um, 
So, you know, we already talked about, though, the plastic wasters, right, which is our beginning level swords. And then right. we move on to blunt steel swords. Which is what I'm holding, right. or is this, right. is this that's, the next that's, level? That's a Federschwert, which is German for feather sword. Okay. So, so um, this is, like, supposed to be the weight, the weight. No, no, the, the weight is proper for the sword, but the weight distribution has changed. It's brought towards the hilt so that the tip doesn't hit as hard. So the hilt is the handle? Right. And okay. also the sword towards the second half is a little bit bendier than a real one would be, and that helps you safely thrust somebody without running it through them. Okay, and it's so, fairly blunted, but I imagine even, you know, two, well, it's about an inch wide. Um, and what would you say? This is like a an, an eighth, a sixteenth of an inch, maybe a little bit Yeah, more a little bit more thick. than that. It's definitely, it's definitely dangerous if you hit somebody unprotected and you don't know what you're doing. So, sure, sure. you know, we wear gear for protection, but... Um, Full we actually, gear, I might add, I was impressed how long it took you to get yeah. that on just to show me a little duel. We actually use sharp swords as well. We never fight each other with sharp swords, but you know, you're talking about knowing what damage they would actually do. Well, we do test cutting. So we have targets, and we borrow this from the Japanese swordsmanship traditions. We use the tatami, the reed mats that are rolled up, and we. Um, we try very specific strikes from the manuals to see if we can cleanly cut through those mats. Because if you don't do it right, it just doesn't work. And, um, and, you know, that's one way of testing our techniques against reality. Because, you know, like Miles alluded to earlier, uh, this is not a sport, so we don't play for points. So just touching the other person with your sword doesn't get you anything. It has to be a good hit. And the judge watching has to say, yes, that would have done something. We like to say that the swords are not lightsabers. <laughs> Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, and then we were talking earlier about drawing the distinction. First of all, the the rapier is that like long antenna-like sword, the one that you see in the Three Musketeers style. That's how you described it, and that's this very light little. Well, the, we, thing. no, that's that's our joke that we make. You know, we, we actually have a lot of respect for Olympic athletes, but our joke about uh, but uh, Olympic modern fencing swords is that they're car antennas. But a rapier is a bit beefier than a car antenna. It's maybe. You know, add a car antenna and a medieval longsword together and divide by two. Would you say, <laughs> S Miles? Some, something like that? <laughs> that's that's called metal math, not mental math. <laughs> a rapier is certainly not a sword you would want to be on the business end of, and that's the, the rapier happens to be the weapon that I specialize in the most, and I have the most interest in those treatises. It's from a time period that I happen to like, and rapier dueling is certainly very interesting from the standpoint that, again, like Jonathan talked about earlier, the Victorians had a lot of very strange ideas about how rapiers were fought with. The other day, somebody came up to me and they were asking me about the rapier, and they asked me, oh, this is for going through armor. And I said, no, rapiers <laughs> were not used against somebody wearing armor. It's for civilian clothed dueling. So between the 16th and 18th, maybe even the early 19th century, you still see people fighting duels with rapiers, and they were very different in their shape from uh, sport fencing epes. They were not whippy. They were not you know, very flexy like that. They were exquisitely well-balanced, could deliver very good cuts, too, to the head and to the legs and arms is where we see most of those cuts being thrown. And you also see a very dynamic sort of style that even alludes itself well to mathematics if you're that academic type of person. You see a lot of the very first applications of physics and geometry to physical exercise in the Renaissance when they're studying rapier fencing. Okay, um, I, ha I had an old boyfriend once, he was Italian when I was in college, and he was very big into Italian fencing. <coughs> Excuse me. That was probably classical fencing, which is what rapier developed into. <laughs> well, what's interesting is, excuse me, he was drawing a distinction always about how, was it, would it be the Frenchman, how he would make fun about how the Frenchman, somebody hops, somebody stayed on the ground. Can you, can you tell me about some of those distinctions? He was always making fun of the opponents. There is a lot of uh, trash talking that goes on between European martial cultures because there is debate on this point, but there still was not a great overarching single tradition of European martial arts. As I mentioned earlier, a lot depends on the time period that we're discussing and the country that we're discussing. So there were schools of thought about how to fence. There's, a, for example, an Italian rapier. There's an Italian school of thought. But there's also a Spanish school of thought, which is called La Verdadera Destreza, which means the true art, I think, is the closest translation that we can get from that time. And there was competing ideas between that. So the Italian school of fencing looked down on the French school, and the French school looked down on the German school, and the English looked down on everybody. So uh, it's a very interesting di uh, dynamic of how all of these cultures are competing with one another. And 
you can settle those arguments just by picking up a sword nowadays and actually trying out those cultures. And it's very fun to go to a tournament and see somebody using an Italian style and then another person who's using a Spanish style. <laughs> and if they're both really good fencers, you can see some great conversations happening with the blades. So really quickly, which is the one that Zorro used? <laughs> Made up. Uh, mostly, not, a, not a real sword? <laughs> mostly made up. It depends, again, on what movie you happen to be looking at. If you're watching the 1940, I think it was The Mark of Zorro, uh -huh. they're using 19th century dueling sabers. And if you want to see a good movie fight duel, you should see that one. It's probably one of the best duels that's ever been filmed. It's with Power Tyrone and Basil Rathbone, Mark of Zorro. It's very good. But if you're looking at The Mask of Zorro, it's that's made up. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so um, let's talk about some of the events where people could go and see this. You talked about tournaments. Are there any local here that could be a touch point for somebody that just wanted to s stick their toe in? Well, the, uh, the HEMA Alliance sponsors um, some regional events, and depending on where they are, some are larger and some are smaller. And uh, the largest regional event actually uh, last year in 2013 was the one that we host in Huntington Beach. And that's coming up in uh, this March, end of March, March 28th to 30th. We are going to have three days of historical European martial arts. We currently have 23 instructors teaching, I think, 14 different weapons and styles. Okay, so how does somebody interact? Do they have to buy a ticket in advance, or how does that work? Uh, they go to SoCalSwordFight.com, and they sign up. They, have, they register for the event. It's uh, really cheap. I mean, we are a nonprofit, and we're just trying to get the word out there. So all we want to do is pay the rent on our three indoor soccer fields full of medieval martial arts. Okay. All right. So can you tell me what somebody would experience in a day at, um, at oh, your event? Oh, all right. What's well, the event called again? SoCal Sword Fight. Okay. Yeah, that's our, that's our uh, big annual event. Well, we have, um, we have somebody coming up from Mexico to teach Italian rapier. We have somebody coming down from Canada to teach English rapier. Oh, that sounds very <laughs> ironic. <laughs> uh, we're going to have Italian short spear. We're going to have German sword and shield. We're going to have um, Viking wrestling, which is going to be taught by uh, Briston Lowry, who is a world champion in Brazilian jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. and also is uh, rediscovering uh, Lausitak Klima, which is the loose grip style of uh of icelandic viking wrestling oh my so. there's there's so much more <laughs> to this than we could get yeah, to in um, this hour we have we have somebody coming to socal sword fight to teach uh filipino uh stick fighting and um you know you, some people might say well wait a second i thought you're teaching historical european martial arts and uh, the answer is well the philippines are named after king philip Oh, and that's well. just, it's an example of the uh, cross-cultural aspect because that's where uh, Spanish fencing meets, uh, meets uh, an Asian martial arts style and what's produced is very deadly and fun. Very deadly and fun. Oh, you know, we have to make sure we touch on that. Okay, so we got the contact info for that event if you want to go see SoCal Sword. Right. That's SoCal Sword Fight. SoCalSwordFight.com, right. right. Oh, and let's see, we're having somebody teach Bartitsu. What is Bartitsu? Bartitsu is Victorian stick fighting with Japanese influence. Um, it was popularized somewhat in uh, the Sherlock Holmes movies. Okay. And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle mentioned Bartitsu in one of his books about Sherlock Holmes because Conan Doyle attended um, Barton Wright's club. Barton Wright was an uh, Englishman who built uh, train tracks. He built trains in Japan for a while, and he brought back some Japanese martial arts, and he created the first deliberately constructed East meets West martial arts style. So he had a club in, uh, in London where he taught, you know, walking cane as a fighting defense system that combined uh, uh, French cane fighting with uh, Japanese stick fighting, and uh, we will be teaching that as well. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> one of the, well, it's kind of like a, a, a bit of a virus when you think about how it's all sort of, you know, mingled about and developed over the ages. Um, one of the things that you brought up in our advance work was, um, is it hoplophobia? Right. Did I say that right? Right. Okay, good. Fear I've of learned, weapons. I learned a couple new words here today. So um, it's been interesting. But it's not just a fear of weapons. It's, a, it's a, an irrational fear of weaponry, right? Right. Well, you know, s 
first of all, some people, it's, it, it's really just a fear of violence, right? They don't want to acknowledge that violence exists in the world, and, and even the idea of studying any martial art is bothersome to them. And then you have people who accept martial arts for the artistry, and, but they think about karate, and, and as soon as you pick up a weapon, they get uh, a little bit nervous. And we have a different um, sort of uh, issue to overcome with people, because one thing that we've noticed, and you know, me being on the board of directors of the Hema Alliance, I kind of field questions and problems from all over the place, is that sometimes on a university campus, a, a, like for example, there'll be a kung fu club, and they will have uh, Chinese sabers, you know, called Dao, and they'll fight with those Chinese sabers in their club for years and years, and nobody says anything. And then one of our clubs gets formed on campus, and we have metal swords too, and everybody flips out right. because there's a there's a um, a positive stereotype associated with Asian arts that, you know, people who study them are peaceful, and they're not going to use them to knock over a Seven Eleven. Gotcha. But, you know, that's one of the things that would, you know, maybe hopefully come out of this interview. If there was any interest on this campus at UCI, um, they could contact you through going through Cron Martial Arts, right? Oh, absolutely. We would love to start a, a club at UCI. We'd love to have a club at UCI get as large as our club at Fullerton. Um, but you know what? Can I, can I tell you a quick story of us trying to? Okay. Yeah. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Jason, my teaching partner, and I decided that we would start a, a historical year in Mar Historical European Martial Arts Club at UCI. And we looked up and found that uh, UCI already had a LARP group. LARP is live action role playing. So they, um, they take on personas, which is very different than what we do. We, um, we're a martial art. There's no, uh, there's no role playing involved. We don't call each other, you know, Lord so-and-so. We use our regular names and we don't dress up in medieval clothing. We simply study medieval sword fighting. But we thought we would visit this LARP group and um, what we would do is our plan was, okay, so we'll be really nice and we'll play their game and we'll kick all their butts and impress them with how we kick their butts and then afterwards we'll show them what we do and then they'll all want to join us. And um, it didn't work out that way at all. Oh, tell me no. how it worked out. Um, Jason and I were both better than their average fighter, but we were not anywhere near the best. They have a very, very different game. It's a sport. They play with uh, foam swords. They don't wear um, head protection like we do, and so the head is off limits, which is very hard for us to adjust to because the head is, you know, goal number one in German swordsmanship. So, um, and then their swords are so flimsy that you can't actually defend with them because somebody would be trying to chop me with one of their foam swords and then I would put my foam sword in between in the right angle just like I'd learned and they would all just bend and it would go right through and hit me anyway. So uh, we didn't impress them, um, but we, they were nice people and uh, afterwards they were uh, obliging enough to let us teach them a little and they were interested, but you know what? They wanted to play their game. They didn't, you know, and, and that's fine. People have their different interests. Very interesting. <clears throat> Any last words, Miles? We're wrapping up on our hour, and we'll give out some more information how people can contact you, but uh, any last words? I would just simply like to say to close up that if you've ever had any kind of interest in medieval history, the Renaissance, this is the right type of activity for you. But as Jonathan said earlier, even if all you want to do is come to our club, learn real sword fighting, learn real authentic techniques, you know, none of what we do is made up. This is the place that, you know, you should come to. And we would really love to see you at our practices contacting us and sharing with us your interests, and we can share them with you. Wonderful. Well, it's been a wonderful hour. Lacey, do you have any final words as we wrap up? I would just like to mention that there is a group on, um, it's actually on Facebook, which is called Esfinges, um, which is... Another word I learned today. E-S-P-H-I-N-G-S. <laughs> <laughs> uh, e and it's for women who are interested in being involved in being involved in HEMA. I and thought there was an F in Esfingus. It's not with it's pH. Well, probably I'm like pretty sure it's it, pH. It's like you said it was okay. related to Sphinx. Yeah, it, yeah, it's Sphinxes in in Spanish, right? <clears throat> yeah. Right, because it started by one of our uh, Mexico friends. Okay, yeah. good. Well, if you can hear that in the background, we're getting an EAS message coming through over the wire. We might forward that in just a minute. But um, just wrapping up here, I, it's been a delightful hour. I love history. So rich. And I loved mostly what you said in the beginning, Miles. If you want to experience it in this more vigorous and physical way, what a beautiful way and so fascinating to um, explore Cron Martial Arts and the HEMA Alliance. So cronmartialarts.com um, is your website, right? And hemaalliance.org. Did I get that uh, right? 
Himalayans.com. Dot com. Okay. All one word. Okay. John, Miles, Lacey, it's been a delightful hour, and I thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.